welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Amen. Don't you guys have a seat? If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back there. I want to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 4. And uh, we've got some ground to cover, so I've already skipped the whole first page here. Uh, which was just some you know, anecdotal stories to kind of set the stage. We're going to jump right in. Uh, I, want to, I want to kind of um, juxtapose two ideas this morning uh, that I think we find in this text. And those two ideas are really confidence and fear. Uh, two things that are, um, as I've meditated and thought about them, just as far apart as you could possibly get. Um, someone who's living from a place of confidence as they really truly know who they are and access the, the essence and the core of who they are or what they are versus someone who lives from a place of fear. Um, two completely different places to live from. Uh, so I want to invite you to uh, look at First John 4, verses 17 and 18. And we're going to uh, try to see what John's after here. So he says this, This is how love is made complete among us, that we... Will be, or we will have confidence on the day of judgment in this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Uh, here's what I want to do today. I want to ask a probing question that I think will um, really open up what John says in verses 17 and 18, which actually is a bit uh, more full. He's been working on this progression for a few verses. And then I want to open a door that I think the text just absolutely um, takes us to. Uh, if, you've been, if you follow uh, Twitter or Facebook or anything, I've, I've mentioned a little bit about where we're going today. And uh, I want to lay my cards on the table. Uh, I, I was just thinking about this last night as I was brushing my teeth. Like, I've never done this before on record with, like, someone, you know, uh, recording this. Uh, and I've thought a lot about and read a lot about how do you read texts that deal with hell and judgment, in the scriptures, and uh, I am at a place now that I wasn't ten years ago. Um, note that's not in the sur- that's not in the in, in the in the script, but really important to note. Uh, I'm guessing ten years from now you won't be where you are now. That's okay. We learn, we grow, we we uh, we experience a different part of God and different um, parts of God, and that's fine. That's all well and good. So I'm going to kind of lay some things on the table, and I want to uh, before we jump in there, I want to give a disclaimer and say, traditionally, the pastor is the truth teller. And the people in the congregation, the parishioners, so to speak, that's you all, in case you're not a church lingo person, uh, you all are kind of the truth receivers, and you listen to and hear what the pastor has to say. And uh, certainly on issues like this one, heaven and hell and things of that sort, you don't don't ask questions about that, because this is the truth teller here. And uh, you kind of take it as it is, so to speak, and... um, there's a very real possibility that if you've ever been a part of a religious context or spiritual community and you kind of push back on some of these things, you, it was met with animosity uh, at the very least and possibly you know, total dismemberment, not literally but uh, spiritually. Like You're asked to leave communities when you challenge tradition or the pastor or the truth teller. And I want to just kind of dispel that and say that's not the kind of community that we're trying to create nor are that we're trying to live into. I want you to think. I want you to think for yourselves. I want to challenge you to think for yourselves. And there's some things that maybe we've been taught growing up that we've sort of just taken along the way, and sometimes we don't ever question them. And I want to say that today at least, uh, and hopefully as we do community together, that you're free to do that. Um, This particular issue, as we talk about judgment and 
John calls it the day of judgment, um, you're free to disagree with me. I want to present some of my thoughts, my, my, uh, and it's going to be based on how I read the text and philosophy and um, theology and metaphysics and a lot of different things, but you're totally free to disagree with me on this one. And I think that we can still do community together. Uh, there's, there's, there's one thing that we really say, this is the non-negotiable at Awaken. It's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, if you think about it, nobody's ever been back from the dead to tell us who's right and who's wrong on this one, right? <laughs> That's a joke. Thank you. <laughs> Trying to cut the tension here. You could cut it with a knife. So nobody's ever been back from the dead to tell us. This is all speculative work that we're doing here. And so I want to offer some thoughts and some reasons why I think the things that I think about this but I want to say that we can be in community together and disagree on the particularities of how it all ends up in the end as it relates to judgment and the things of that sort, okay? Everybody's still with me. Anyone sweating yet? Okay. Uh, so let's, let's try to unpack this. Let's try to unpack this. Here's what I think John is really... He says a couple things in verses 17 and 18. One, love is made complete. But then he goes on and he says, we can have confidence in something, right? Confidence. And then he kind of uh, offers this other alternative of fear. So he says, we can, love is complete. We can have confidence. And, and if we're in God, essentially, there's no fear. Um, so I want to do some drawing this morning. And I want to try to work out this first part. I want to ask a question that sort of unpa- or, or gets us into unpacking this. And the question is... What does love made complete look like? John, we get verses 17 and 18 as far as where we are in the study, but what does love made complete look like? Because he starts the passage and he says, um, this is how love is made complete among us, that we will have confidence, so on and so forth. So here we go. John has this premise that God is love, all right? Love, 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 love. In God's essence, the very character, the nature of who God is, in the very being, it's, it's one and the same. God is love, and love is God. Okay, So if you experience anything of love that's true and, and, and um, uh, sort of reflects the truth about love, then you've experienced something of who God is. Okay, John says that you and I can be in God, and God can be in us. Just, just in verse 16b, he says, God can be in us, and we can be in God. Us in God. Now, he starts this by basically saying, you and me here, this is us down here. He says, you and I have this possibility. We can actually experience this. And this is what love looks, this is love complete. When you and I are in God and God is in us, then love is made complete. And there's a whole progression that John has even uh, worked out in this book. He starts with grace. Grace is what God gives. God reveals God's self. God offers God's self in its total grace. We do nothing to deserve it, nothing to, uh, we can't work for it. None of these things, it's just grace. It's a gift. And John says, he goes on to say, if we confess Jesus as Lord, the couple verses before in verse 15, and we respond to this grace, then he says we receive the Holy Spirit. This is all receiving this is gift. We just, take, we just receive it, we receive it. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on and he says, to be in God and God to be in you, for love to be made complete, there's more to this equation. He says, we should abide in Christ. We should uh, love others. I'm recognized that you guys probably can't read anything I'm writing. I'm just flying here. He says that uh, you should be in the light. You should remain. We should abide. The same, same word that Jesus uses in John, I think it's 17 or in John's gospel, he says, remain in me and I in you, like the vine and the branches, right? These are all things that we 
respond to. So John says, to be in God and God to be in us, love is made complete. And here's what that looks like. It's all of these things. It's receiving the gift of grace, and it's responding to the gift of grace. And when all of that happens, love is made complete. Now, this assumes that there's a version of life or our experience where love is not complete. We'll get there in a second. So all of this, John says, gives us confidence. This is where we live from a place of who we truly were made to be, and this produces a confidence in you. Why or when? John says, when judgment. I always want to add an E there. John says, this day of judgment. If you are in God and God is in you, you've responded, you've received the grace, you've responded, and you're living this life of remaining, abiding, doing this thing, then all of this is love made complete. And when that happens, you can have confidence when the day of judgment comes. That's essentially the flow that he's worked out so far. Now, the alternative to that, of course, I've ran out of room. I need another white. Lane, I'll take you up on that bigger whiteboard wherever you are. Um, The alternative to this, of course, John says, is fear. And what does this look like? Remember, God is love. We're starting here. And essentially, John says that this doesn't happen. To live outside of God, to not respond to the grace that, that, we, that we see in Christ, to not respond, to do... This is essentially to live on our own. And John says, in a very, very real way, that this produces a, a position of fear, not love. He says, if, 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 if this is love made complete, then perfect love drives out fear. When we experience this, fear has no part of that. When we don't, fear enters the equation. And it's very possible for us to live from a place of fear instead of a place of confidence. Y'all tracking so far? Now, this walks us up to this question of what is the day of judgment, right? Because this is a real, this is a, this is a real question. We have to answer that. Now, a little play with me here, if you would. Um, interactive part of the, the time today. Another interactive part. Um, when, we, when, when you hear the word, the day of judgment, or the day of the Lord, might be another, uh, somebody else, another biblical author's version of this, what are the things that you think of, or how do you interpret it? What's the classic kind of typical uh, response to this kind of language? Go ahead, shout some things out. Left behind, okay? You all familiar with this? Go to Sam's Club and look at the Christian book section. You'll find it. Okay, what else? Or Walmart, or Target. Or, okay, keep going. What else? What else do you think of? Say it again. Oh, court. Okay, I thought you said corn. I'm like, this ought to be good. This ought to be really good. Hell and corn, you get popcorn. That's what I'm talking about right there, okay? (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thought of that on the spot. Court, like a lock. Harry, what was that show, Mom? The the, night night court. Thank you very much. You remember that one, Harry, the the judge. Okay, tracking. We got to stay on track here. We don't have a lot of time. What else? What do you think of? Death. Christ's return. I mean, the obvious one, hell, right? I don't think I have to convince you or work too hard to convince you that if you've been around religious communities, Christian communities, particularly evangelical communities, when you hear day of judgment equals often hell. What happens after we die and where the bad people go or however you want to parse that out in your head? I want to submit to you this morning that that might be, at the very least, anachronistic, 
animeing against, chronos being time, that that's an importing of a lot of theology that was done way after any of these people wrote or talked about, especially Jesus and the New Testament writers. That's an anachronistic move where we take things that we know now or think now or believe now based on things that have happened since then and import them back into the text. That's anachronistic. At the very least, it's anachronistic. At the very worst, it's a terrible misreading of scripture. I don't think that when John wrote the day of judgment to these, these friends who were out in the Roman Empire, that he was referring to hell, a lake of fire, or any of the above. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. I hope that I show you um, why by the time we're done. Um, so we have to ask the question, what is the day of judgment? And I would say, we have to say this. For a first century Jew... Putting the world to right is a way I would talk about it, or I think is a good understanding of what judgment meant for the people who wrote this first. This idea of putting the world to right, um, that one day God would, in fact, judge sin, evil, and injustice, and that these things would not go unanswered, but in fact that they would have their day in court, so to speak. Thank you for that one. That God would answer. That they wouldn't go unanswered, but that these things would be dealt with definitively. That they would be eradicated from the way in which we experience the world. So this day of judgment for a first century Jew, I think for Jesus when he was talking about these things, I think for John, I think for Paul meant not necessarily hell as we understand it, like a lake of fire where people are going to go forever, but something very, very different. Let me try to unpack a little bit more of that. Um, one, one might say an, an event or a moment where God judges, vanquishes, eradicates uh, evil, sin, and injustice from the world. And it's important for us to remember a couple things on this note. One, This day that John speaks of, which is a reality in the biblical text over and over and over again, we can't deny, this day was not a history-ending event, but rather an intra-historical moment when God would return to God's world and do these things. So it's not something that ended history, and it certainly wasn't the beginning of an evacuation for all of God's people to another planet, world, sphere, whatever you want to call it. That idea is just not anywhere in the text except for 1 Thessalonians, which has to do more with a Roman king conquering a land out far away, coming back to his people, and his people going out to meet the king and usher him back into the kingdom. That's what Paul's referencing, and that's really the only way that we could ever devise a theology that talks about being left behind and far away in some distant land. So it's not for the original writers a sort of history-ending event and then some sort of evacuation plan. It's It's a moment that happens in history and is a part of history. One author, um, or this is the day when, when the prophets would have spoken and they would have talked about God uh, vindicating God's people and God's, um, God's Messiah. Isaiah speaks a lot about the Messiah that's to come. To vindicate literally means to clear, or bl- clear of blame or suspicion, to show or prove to be right. So this was simply the action by which God proved God's self and God's people and God's servant right in the world. One author says this, a day of judgment 
this day of judgment, is a moment in history when Israel's God is expected to put things right, to deliver his people from oppression, to defeat their enemies, to vindicate the righteous, to punish the wicked, to demonstrate his righteousness. So we have to take into account all of the scripture and I would say the extra biblical sources that talk about and reference this idea of the day of judgment or a day of the Lord. And this always spoke of a moment in history, a catastrophic, often a war kind of scene where God would come and vindicate, would, uh, would punish or deal with the unrighteous within Israel or the enemies of Israel, and they would be defeated and destroyed. Psalm 9, Psalm 82, Psalm 96, Psalm 98, Isaiah 1, 13, 34, a whole host of different texts that talk about this idea that spoke of a specific moment and time in history when God would return to God's people in God's world. Now, that's what's at play when John says day of judgment in 1 John 17, 4, 17. What's not at play? What's not at play is eternal conscious suffering and torment in a place called hell. It's just not there. Any reading of this text to get up is an anachronism. It's something that we bring back into the text, and I would submit to you that it's just not a biblical notion. The only notion of, of, of the afterlife in the Jewish, for a Jew in the Old Testament is this concept of Sheol, and it is squishy at best. It talks about the grave. It talks about um, uh, you know, the abyss or darkness, and it's not referenced all that much, and nobody's clear on what it means for sure 100%. It's always this. So the only reference to that in the Old Testament, this idea of, of something that might look even close to our version of hell now, is this thing of Sheol, and that is just tenuous at best. So what's not at play, I would submit, when John says this, is eternal conscious suffering and torment in a place that we call hell. Now, let me try to give you a couple of reasons, and and today um, we can't really do an exhaustive um, look at this, and I apologize for that. I would love, if any of you are more interested in talking more about this, Micah at awakencommunity.com, 612-965-0151, 6438 Newton Avenue, Richfield, Minnesota. I would welcome, I really would welcome the opportunity to talk more about it because we can't do it all today. Here are a couple of reasons why I think that that's just not at play when we talk about judgment, the day of judgment, when God is going to return and judge and deal with sin, evil, and injustice. Number one, there are multiple metaphors in the scriptures many metaphors in the scriptures that speak of this idea when God will return and judge sin, evil, and injustice. Here are just a few of them. One of them is Gehenna. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 5. Gehenna is a Greek word that's translated hell. It's actually a physical, literal place outside the city of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. It happened to be the city dump. So when something was not participating in the way, uh, the, the thing that it was supposed to be or do, and it was no longer useful to anyone or anything, it would be taken out to the edge of the city and thrown off a hill into a valley called the Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, where often, actually historically this is true, uh, if there are dead rotting things there, often there, things would spontaneously combust. And so as the, as the historians look back, they would say that there were fires that eternally burned, that burned forever in, in the Valley of Hinnom, because this is just how biology works. Um, when things decompose, they heat up. So there were always fires burning in the Valley of Hinnom. This is the reference that Jesus makes when he's in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. 
So he's speaking of a literal physical place outside the city that people would have been like, oh, totally, I get it. I don't want to do that, and I don't want to be there, right? When things go there, they've lost their purpose. They're no longer uh, useful, and they're thrown away, okay? That's one metaphor. Another is fire. Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist is speaking, he uses this metaphor of fire. Now, interestingly, whenever fire is used as a reference to, as it's translated hell in the New Testament, or this idea... The fire is not something that, um, the point isn't that it just burns forever. The point is that the fire will do what the fire does. Often it's in, in context of wheat and chaff, and that the fire will burn away the chaff. Not that the chaff will burn forever, eternally, consciously tormented, but that the fire will do away with the chaff, the things that aren't necessary, the things that are not fruitful. So the point of the fire is not that it burns forever, eternally, but that it does what the fire comes to do. It, it It does away with the things that aren't useful anymore. That's the metaphor that it's being used to communicate. So you have Gehenna, you have fire, you have Matthew 8. Jesus talks about darkness and separation, that they would be thrown out into utter darkness. BT dubs, if if hell is a lake of fire, fire produces what? Light. How can it also be utter and total darkness? The simple answer is it can't. These are metaphors, pictures that help us understand what's at stake here. How, how bad is it to be outside of God? How bad is it to be not, uh, not participating in the things that we were created to participate in? How horrible is that? One other one is destruction, total annihilation, just kind of like the ceasing to exist point being, all metaphors that the scriptures use to talk about this idea of when God returns and and does what God will do with sin, evil, and injustice. Now, one other thing. The primary text that we use to sort of back up this idea is Luke chapter 16. It's a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Luke chapter 16, it's a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a parable of of the rich man and Lazarus. Parables are not intended to be understood literally. Nowhere else do we say, you know, Jesus tells this parable. We're going to transport that parable and cause it to mean the literal thing that the parable speaks of. That's just silly. It's silly. Now, if you were going to participate in in that kind of activity where you say, Jesus' parable, this one... We're going to take this one literally and none of the other ones. But if you did and you actually took it literally, there's a few problems that rise up out of the literal interpretation of this text. One being, Lazarus can talk to the rich man, i.e., heaven and hell occupy the same space. I mean, if you go up to the top of the hill, the park, and you yell, and I'm down here at the moose country, and you yell down, I can't hear you, right? So you've got to come pretty close for me to hear you and have a conversation with you. If we're going to take it literally, then heaven and hell occupy the same space. That's problematic. The the scripture tells a story of a God who is all and in all, who tells of a world that is redeemed, restored, recreated, where there is joy and love overflowing. I just have a question. Like, how is that possible if we're going to take that literally? How is it possible, and let's just say that somebody that you love happens to be there. How can you experience the love and the beauty of God amidst the the eternal conscious suffering and torment of your loved one? It's just a question I've got. We could go on and on. 
I could go on and on and offer some other ideas, but I want to transition, and I want to say, if this is, if that's what's not at play when John's talking about the day of judgment, here's something that's also not at play, and I would submit to you the idea of universalism. Universalism taking one of two forms. One being, it's all one mountain. You can take whatever road you want up to it, and you're all going to get to God at the end. That's one version of universalism. Everybody's saved in the end, and it doesn't matter how you get there. Another version of universalism is this idea that the the, the work and the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the thing by which we are all saved, whether or not we acknowledge it or, or not. But eventually, the work of Jesus is effective for all of creation. And I got I to gotta be straight with you. Um, I can't affirm that, and here's why. Now, before I say that, I want to. I want to affirm that. And I hope, I hope and I pray that you want to affirm that as well. Because I have to ask the question, what does it say about my heart if I don't want to affirm the fact that God restores and redeems all that God made. And if, if not for the grace of God, there go I, my grandpa used to tell me. How can I desire that God's grace would not get to someone made in the image of God, created by God, loved by God? How can I actually, in my heart, not want them to participate in that? Or need them to not participate in that? For me, that is all kinds of problems. So I want to affirm it, I want, dare we hope that all might be saved, but I, here's two reasons why I can't. Number one, I think free will is absolutely essential. It's absolutely essential in how I understand the world, how I understand my relationship to the world and to God, and how I understand the problem of evil and suffering in the world. And if we, I think if we lose free will, i.e. that in the end, God's the inescapable love of God converts, uh, convinces everybody and eventually all come to the every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, whether they want to or not, I think that you lose free will. And I think that the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a story of a God who freely offers God's self to humans who have the freedom to choose to offer themselves back or to receive the love of God and the freedom to opt out. And if that's not honored in the end, then I think we lose something really, 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 really important in how we understand the world, how we understand the problem of evil and suffering in the world. Secondly, I think that there's just overwhelming evidence in the scripture that says otherwise. It seems to me that as you study the scriptures, that God offers God's self out of grace. Grace, 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 grace that God offers God's self and that humans have the capacity and, the, and, the, and the, the ability to choose to receive that or to live outside of that. I think if you study the scriptures and you're honest with them, that there, are, there will be some who choose to opt out of the grace of God, who choose to live outside of the love of God, and I think John's whole point in this text when he says, listen, God is love. If you live in God, God lives in you. And this is how love is made complete. And we can have confidence then because one day God will return and will judge and, and speak to sin and evil and injustice. And for those of you 
those of me who participate daily and who either consciously or or explicitly or implicitly, who participate and cause sin, evil, and injustice in the world, there is a desperate need for me to receive the grace offered in Jesus Christ. And that grace is offered freely on the cross in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. John says, two possibilities. We started here, we'll end here. Confidence and fear. To be a person who lives from a place of confidence is, to, is to, I would submit, to be a person who, who understands and is, is accessing who they truly are, their essence, what they were made for. This produces in us a place of confidence where we can stand and say, this is who I am. John says, and I think the scriptures teach, and I affirm, that this comes through grace as we receive Jesus and as we do, as we respond, as we abide, as we love others, as we love ourselves, as we walk in the light, as we practice these things that John says we should practice, that Jesus practiced. And so I guess this morning I would offer you those thoughts. I don't think that this day of judgment taps into some of the things that I think that we, that we run to for whatever reason we run to them or whatever reason we immediately connect them to. So I want to I I jettison those. I want to say they're not helpful. In fact, they're, they're harmful and they're often used to... Fear is a terrible motivator. It might convince the will, but it will not convince the heart does not last. And those things have been used to coerce people into some, I would say, wacky understanding of who God is and what it means to follow him and be connected to him, to be in God and to, to God, for God to be in you. And so I want to I push those away. I do not want to... I, 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 because if you've, if you've experienced any kind of evil and any kind of suffering in the world or any kind of injustice, don't you need God to do something about that? Don't we need God to answer the horrible things that we see and that we have seen and that we are seeing? Don't we need a God who is just to say, that is not how I made this world to be, and it will answer. Don't we need? I need that. That gives me great hope. Not that people will suffer the consequences of that, but that God is just and that this is not how the world was supposed to work. So this idea that God is going to make, that he's going to put the world to right, man, I am just hanging on to that. And I'm, I'm investing myself in the fact that we get to participate in that and God invites us into that to be, to be beacons, to be these, these, these sort of um, uh, beachheads of, of the way it should be, the way it was, the way it's going to be. That God invites us into being people, salt and light, these, these inbreakings of light in a dark and broken world. So I don't think we can lose that and be faithful to the text. I just want to offer a different perspective on it. And I guess I would leave you asking very, very real questions about Cheesy, I'm sorry, as cheesy as it sounds, like 
Where are you? I think that God respects and honors the choices that we make. And if we choose to live a life outside of God, then that is what we get. But I think God has offered God's self in a way that God is accessible and available to us. And friends, we need it. We need it. I I I don't have to convince any of us that we desperately need this. Tracy, you just raised your hand. What's up? I want I'll offer another a different metaphor, maybe. And this is one that has helped me. I think that when we opt out, that God removes the creative and animating energy that God gives that make us selves. If, if, if we say, I don't need you or want you, then I think God removes the, the actual, in, in Genesis where it says, and God breathed into Adam and he became a living spirit. That God respects that and removes the, the sustaining, creative energy and animating life that makes us humans. And we, we either cease to exist. C.S. Lewis posited a version, uh, some people call it annihilationism, where we cease to be human. Uh, another, another way to see it is we exist unto ourselves eternally. So if you and I are created to be relational beings, and we opt out of the very relationship that gives us life, then we exist unto ourselves forever, which would be a lot like hell. So those are two things I would offer. I think that there are serious consequences for when we opt out of the way in which God created the world. Absolutely. I just want to jettison the idea of using an idea, a theological idea of eternal conscious suffering and torment in a lake of fire to motivate people to turn to God. I think it's a bad move, and I think it's unbiblical. Does that help? Okay. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, to to go against the very essence of what we were created to be and do and experience, to say like, I don't want, that. That's that's like death. Uh, and I think I think it is a I think it is a horrible nightmarish idea to live outside of what we were created to live as God made us. Now I'm making a lot of assumptions about we're subjective and God is objective and a lot of philosophical things I'm doing in that. But uh, yeah, that's like hell. And I don't think any one of us can stand on concrete space and say, this is how it's going to happen. And if you don't do this, then you get this. I think that's danger. That's a dangerous place to be, and I want to. I think the church has stood there at times, and I, I, uh, I, I don't like it. Yeah. 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 And 
Right. Yeah, I think one of the things that I want to at least bring to the surface here today is that I think we have privileged a particular metaphor that the scriptures use to talk about those who are outside of God, as John, in the language of John, since we're studying John. And there's really no grounds that we've done that for that warrant it. So let's think about it and let's look at the text and ask honest questions of it. Um, we had a, a couple things planned. Uh, ben, I'm just going to ask, can we just... Um, boy. <laughs> um, the medium is the message. So what do we communicate by singing one last song together? Um, what's, what's the song we were going to sing? We're going to pass on that. I'll tell you what I want to do. Would you just come and play quietly for a moment? And I want to just let people uh, have maybe just a few moments of space to um, ask God, uh, how is my heart? What are you doing in my heart um, in hearing this today? Um, I don't want to I don't want to make that decision for you. And I want you to wrestle with it. So can I ask that we do just do that? Is that okay? Um, why don't you just spend a few, a minute or two. Uh, we'll do two, three minutes, and, and then we'll get you out of here. I recognize we've gone a little longer than normal. But um, let me just offer a quick word of prayer, and we'll do that, and then I'll close. God, as we enter this time, might you be present. Might you speak to us. Might you burn away the chaff in our own thoughts of you. The things that are not of you, God, I pray that they wouldn't last. The things that are of you, I pray that they would become very clear in our minds and in our hearts. Would you do that now?
creator God, giver of all good things, giver of life. I thank you. Personally, I just thank you for a community where I can be myself and offer who I am to this community. I thank you for my friends, and I ask God that you would be with us, that you would not leave us nor forsake us in the midst of thinking deeply about things that matter a great deal. God, may we always come back to love, the fact that you call us to love. God, may we have a profound sense of trust that in the end you will be God and that we don't have to worry, we don't have to strive, we don't have to grasp or try to force anything on anyone. God, that we trust that you are God and that in the end, you will do what God will do. We thank you for the revelation of yourself in Jesus who constantly opens the door wider to include more, who constantly offers life and love and grace and mercy. May we be found as your church participating in those things, offering those things to the world as we see you doing so clearly on Calvary. May we come under people and empower them and give them life, offer them life in the ways that they were meant to live, forgiveness and grace, connection to you and to each other in the world we live in. God, may we be found in you and you in us. We pray these things in your name by the power of your spirit. All God's people said, amen. Grace and peace. See you guys. Love you. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.